All right. All right, good to have you all here. I'll wait for Jim. <laughs> Treats are pretty important, so. <laughs> Carolyn said to me uh, this week, she said, what are we going to do for treats during Lent? Because I don't want to not have treats, because treats are pretty important for catechumenate, but we, what are we going to do about that? Said, well, we'll figure something out. <laughs> so, oh, okay, well, let us pray. Gracious God and Father, through your Son, Jesus Christ came to bring us your heavenly peace. Violence and conflict still rage among your children on earth. We thank you that in your mercy and goodness you have caused recent violence between Russia and Ukraine to be supported with prayer and fasting around the world. Bring a restoration of calm and security and heal the wounds that have been inflicted. Preserve peace among all nations so that what has been laid waste and made desolate can again be planted and built up. Open your fatherly heart and bountiful hand to help all in need. Grant that we all may live together in unity and peace, and that all hatred and ill will be remembered no more. Give us that peace which the world cannot give, and grant us grace, that delivered from all conflict and strife, we may live in harmony and safety, and finally, having gained the eternal rest of the saints in glory, may praise and bless, worship and glorify you forever. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, lots to do today. Um, firstly, remember this. All of the Ten Commandments are kept when what is not kept is forgiven. So that you really can say, I have kept the Ten Commandments but that I haven't done so by my own works or by my own efforts, but by the efforts of Christ. And this is, a, this is where a great little trick question or trap question comes for Lutherans because you say, are you saved by works? And a Lutheran says, no, no you're not. And the sneaky pastor says, well, actually, you are, in fact, saved by works. Because how do you keep the Ten Commandments without works? But the kicker is, it's not your works. So really, a better question is, are you saved by your works? And the answer to that, of course, is no. But are you saved by works? Yes. Whose works, though? Christ's. And, in fact, is the faith that you have your own faith? Justification by faith. But whose faith? Is it your faith? Or is it Christ's faith? See, because if you believe that faith is your thing, that you've done it, or that you say, I have believed, and therefore because I believed, therefore that is my faith, and I am saved, then you, that isn't actually faith, that's a work. So when you go to funerals, and I get really nitpicky at funerals that I am not conducting, and this is the curse of being a pastor, is once you know how to preach a sermon and you learn 
the inside baseball about sermons, then you can never listen to a sermon the same way again because you're always sitting there going, hmm, how are they going to preach this text? Well, I wouldn't have said that. Hmm, well, I, you know, and you're just always sitting there nitpicking. And funerals are pretty big places for pastors to nitpick. But for me, one of the things I always get very upset about is when people say, we're going to have a sermon that's about justification by faith, and then they preach about so-and-so believed so hard that now they are with Jesus. And you say, but is that faith? Because it sounds an awful lot like works. And that is because it is works. My faith is not me believing. My faith is something that has been given to me by the Lord. It is a work of God. My faith really is Christ's faith. And when Christ's righteousness is imparted and Im imputed to me, um, I am participating in Christ's faith, which is why you can say all of the good that I do is not me, but Christ in me, as St. Paul writes. Because Christ is really the one doing it. When you believe and make a good confession of the Father, does the Father pat you on the back and say, boy, I'm so glad you thought to say that. No, Jesus looks at you and says, just like he says to St. Peter, Ah, my dear servant, surely flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. Um, because what is a good, when we talk about confession of faith, and we'll talk more about that when we get to the creed, uh, when we talk about a confession of faith, what is it essentially? Is it you voicing what it is that you personally believe? No, it isn't. The church doesn't care about what you personally believe. That, that's the thing that people find really hard to understand. So if, take abortion, for instance. Because this, this is one that really hits, I mean, not close to home in that we deal with it in our congregation, not that I know of, but I know other congregations that do where folks will come to church and they say, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but I reject the church's teaching on abortion. Because I think that, I think that, you know, I want to be pro-choice and a mother should have the right to do that. And then you say, if you reject the teachings of the church, are you a part of the church? I want to be part of the church, but I only want to affirm the things that I agree with. Okay, but what does that mean about you? What is your confession? I don't honestly care about your personal opinions. Because when it comes to the church, we are all in submission to the church. The church says, this is what we believe, and you either say, yes, I do believe that, or you say, no, I don't. You either accept it in whole or you don't. So your opinions about, well, but, 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 I mean, the buts get left at the door. You're in or you're out. And that's why, because we're in submission, because the faith isn't about our opinions. It's about the Lord's opinions, because a good confession of faith is not your own thought. It is you speaking back what God has said. And that's a really important distinction to be made. Your confession of faith is not saying, I personally, the Reverend Eamon M. Ferguson, believe X, Y, and Z. Now, if you ask me for my opinions on things, I will give them. And very often I do give my opinions in Bible class about specific theological issues that there is debate about. And my opinions, like everyone else's opinions, come from reading and studying and learning. 
So what, when I offer an opinion, it's one that I can back. It isn't just... But when it comes to what happens in the service, I don't give you opinion. If, if it's me preaching a sermon, I'm not giving you opinion. Um, because it's not about that. My faith is not defined by what I say I personally believe. Because at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. What matters is what Christ says about himself and about his church, and then that his people say, yes, okay. If Jesus comes and says, the sky's not blue, it's purple, then it's your duty to say, hmm, the sky's not blue, it's purple. But if Jesus says, the sky's not blue, it's purple, then the sky is not blue, it's purple. That's the difference between you know, a, a tyrant who says two plus two equals five, and somebody who speaks the truth authoritatively and says, two plus two is four. It isn't equals, it is, because it can't be anything else. You see? So when Jesus speaks, we speak back to him what he's already told us, and that is um, the faith. So faith and, uh, and keeping the law all stems from Christ. What is not kept is kept when you are forgiven, because Christ keeps the law, and his righteousness his ability to keep the law, or rather, not his ability, but the rewards of him keeping the law are then given to you. You cheat, he plays the game correctly, and somehow he still wins even though you're cheating, and then he says, well, here's the trophy. You can take it. You won. And that's the way it works. Now, we need to look at Ezekiel chapter 18. This is a very important um, Old Testament. Uh, okay, Ezekiel chapter 18. And um, while you're turning to that, I want to reinforce something that I don't remember if I hinted at last week or not, but when, I, when, you, when we talk about sin being an evil death, remember we contrast sin being an evil death with what the church and what your pastor and what ultimately the Lord wants for you, which is a good death, so um, to die well. And when you look in the hymnal at the litany, do you know about the great litany? Have you ever heard of that before? The great litany is a big, long prayer of the church. Um, it's on page 288. And actually, the Lutheran church is pretty cool because um, the Great Litany is old, very old. And there is an, a musical setting of the litany that is not in this hymnal, but it is in the organist version, so that you can actually sing the whole litany. But it's a big, long prayer. And there is, in here, a prayer for deliverance from sudden and evil death somewhere. Um, it's somewhere in this, and I'm not going to take the time to try and find it. But there is for deliverance from sudden and evil death. And even there, we're praying that the Lord would deliver us from an evil death, which is a death that is in sin in unrepentance and forgiveness because we want to die well. I want you to die well. 
I, which doesn't mean dying unafraid, because everybody will be afraid. I will be afraid, because you don't, you've never been there before. So there's always fear with death, and this is what people always say to pastor, oh, I'm so sorry that I'm afraid to die. And I said, why are you sorry? You don't have to apologize for that. Christ prayed in the garden that the Lord would take, that the Father would take away that cup from him. He didn't want to die. Now, of course, you on your deathbed, your death is not quite what Christ did, but there is always a fear of death. So dying well doesn't mean dying 100% fearless, but it means dying trusting in the Lord, and you can be afraid and trust in the Lord. When you're little and you believe there's a monster under your bed and your father tells you, I promise you there is no monster, you can still believe and trust in your father and in his word to you and also still be afraid. So there you can still have a little bit of fear. It's despair that we, you know, terror, the extremes. Terror is fear without any hope. Despair is sorrow without any hope. So despair and terror are what we want to avoid. But dying well is not that you are not afraid, but that you have hope in the victory of Christ and that you have trust in him and that you are not uh, absolutely inconsolably sorrowful at the hour of your death and that you are repentant, trusting and holding firmly to the grace of God. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to give you comfort is the grace of God. That he's, you say, I am, a, I am a sinner. And God says, I know you're a sinner. I'm a bear of no brain at all. And he says, oh, I think you're being a little hard on yourself, don't you? I love you and I've forgiven you, you your sins. I think you're the best bear in all the world. And pretty soon you're just going to take a big long nap and I'll be the one to tuck you in and keep you safe. And there's not going to be any monsters under your bed. And then when I wake you up, we're going to go and we're going to play forever. I mean, that's it. And uh, that's what we want. So, um, sin and to hold on to sin, because that's another thing. Um, what's the only sin Jesus can't forgive? The one you don't give to him. Yep. So the sins that you hold on to are the sins that are going to give you an evil death. And you give them to Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not still struggling with them, by the way. So don't think that if I am wrestling with a sin, that I am not giving it to Christ. If you are repentant and, and you really are heartfelt and you are, you know, the fact that you are wrestling with a sin means that you are not you know, wholly giving in to it. Now, uh, well, as you experience today, when you wrestle, sometimes somebody else has more power over you, and sometimes you have more power. But that doesn't. It, but it's a it's a struggle, and and it doesn't mean that you go in there going, well, I guess if I'm going to go wrestle, it means someone's going to get the better of me, so I might as well not try, and then get slammed to the mat. Um, no. You know, you know that you're going to win some and you're going to lose some. But you work to try and win more than you lose. That's the effort. So wrestling with sin is different than giving in to sin. So keep that in mind too, because that's a, that's a source of comfort. People often get very, um, they get very hard on themselves for struggling with sins that they just can't seem to kick. And everybody has at least one of those that just is really ingrained, that is really hard to kick. And then they despair because they think, 
I am not a repentant sinner. I haven't given this sin to Jesus because if I had given it to Jesus, I wouldn't still commit it. And that's not exactly how it is. To wrestle with sin means that you are striving to combat it. Wrestling with sin and struggling with sin is different than giving in to sin. Giving in to sin is just relinquishing all control, letting evil have its way with you, giving it a body, and saying, well, this is the way it is, and turning away from Christ. Wrestling is the constant struggle uh, to turn toward Christ while you are in the battle of someone else trying to pull you away. So that's different. Have you ever seen, boy, this is gonna, I maybe shouldn't ask this question, The Never-Ending Story from the 80s, you remember that movie? There's a scene in that movie that traumatized me as a child. And I think I'm not the only one. But the little boy is leading his horse through the swamps of despair or something. And the swamps, the sadder that you get, the deeper you sink into this swamp. And he keeps on, his horse just gives up and starts sinking in. And his horse has given up hope and he hasn't. It's this terrible gut-wrenching scene where his horse just gets sucked down and he's like, no, no, it's it's okay, there's hope at the end. And that's sort of like the Christian life, right? You're you're walking and the world is your swamp of despair. And every now and then you'll start sinking down a little bit more and Christ turns around and goes, no, no, look at me, don't look at that, look at me. Here's a better example. Here's a better example that that, uh, you will resonate more with. Uh, Peter walks on the water, and he starts to sink into the water when he looks at the water. <laughs> oh boy, these waves are pretty big. <laughs> and it, it isn't until, you know, it isn't until that he looks at the water and starts focusing more on the water around him that he starts sinking. Because as long as my eyes are on Christ, I can, I can, you know, I'm looking at the prize and I can persevere in this race. But yes, the waves are very large around me, but. Christ is larger than the waves. Christ is stronger than my strong enemy. Christ talks about you being held captive in the house of a strong man. And how do you get out? You know, how, how does somebody rob the strong man and steal his possessions? Which are you, by the way. Um, well, he has to be stronger than the strong man. And he has to go in and bind the strong man. And only when he has become stronger than the strong man and taken him down and bound him, only then can he take the possessions of that strong man. The devil is the strong man. Your sins are the strong man. And there has to be one stronger. So who do you look to? This is why Christianity is always about motion and looking. Where are your eyes looking? Where is your motion? Because you're living, you're not static. Are you going this way or are you going this way? Are you looking here or are you looking there? Um, So when you are submitting to evil then, you are actively casting the Holy Spirit out of yourself. It is like you are, it's like you've, you know, taken liquid charcoal and you are purging yourself of the Holy Spirit. You've taken something into your body that is bad and that your body rejects. And you, you say, well, my stomach's starting to churn, what do I want to come out? Do I want it to be the wicked thing I put into it or do I want it to be the good thing that was in there before? And you say, I'd rather have the, the good thing come out. And you cast out the Holy Spirit. 
Um, the Holy Spirit cannot live in a place where there is wickedness. So you are, in giving in to sin, you know, not, again, not in the struggle with sin, but in giving in to sin, in relinquishing, uh, in relinquishing your struggle, in saying, well, I give up. Let sin have its way with me. The Holy Spirit is being forced away from you and the guardian angels who the Lord sends to watch over you, you are also pushing them away. And without the Spirit and without the angels to watch over you and protect you, what defense do you have? Nothing. You've kicked the guard out of the city and then the enemy just walks right in. Uh, this is another reason why, firstly, living the Christian life instead of thinking about the Christian life is so important. But secondly, while, why uh, dying a good death is better than a, an evil death. Because you don't want to die in the city that's conquered and owned by the enemy. You want to die in the city of God. Which is a book by St. Augustine, by the way. You should read that. It's a great book. So, let's look at Ezekiel 18. We'll start at verse 3. Actually, verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, if he has not eaten on the mountains nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached a woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just, he shall surely live, says the Lord God. Um, what is the tone of this? That's an important thing. What is the tone of the Lord in speaking this? It's not a sin to have a wrong answer. Just take a guess. I want to know what your thoughts are, because I genuinely care. This is not a teaching ploy. Let's have some forced interaction. I hate that. <laughs> when I read it, I hear things, and I, this is what I do, but I want to know what you're saying. So, I don't know what tone. Yeah, well, that's exactly, that's what I want you to say. It's not harsh. Is the Lord, with these words, speaking in a condemnatory tone? Is he saying, you better not do this. You better not do this, because if you do that, you're going to die. No. no. And you can already start to tell from this. Now, the whole chapter, we don't have time to look through the whole chapter, but I'm going to highlight bits of it. This is a beautiful chapter. The whole thing is that the Lord is saying, look, if you sin, you're going to die. 
and there is nothing that I can do about that. Which is true. The Lord has, there is nothing he can do about the fact that if you sin, you die. That is why anybody who tells you, well, Jesus didn't have to die. He chose to die for you, is, is wrong. Jesus did have to die. Um, if, if Jesus is the Christ who comes to take away the sin of the world, how is it that that is done? Only by death. And does the Lord have the option of saying, well, now mankind has sin, I guess I'll write them off and I'll make something new. Is, no, it's not an option. How do you know it's not an option? Okay, yes, he takes on the sins, but he takes on the sins because he doesn't have a choice. He must do it. Why must he do it? Why can he not just turn his back on mankind and say, well, sucks to be you. Die in your sin. Love. Yes! Love! Because God is love. He isn't representative of love. Love is not his nature. He is love. Remember that. God is love. Which is funny because then you see the signs that say love is love and you can say, well, no, God is love. God, God is love. So any love that is different than God is not love because God is love. Um, so love is love. God is love, which means that everything he does is love. He creates out of love. He sustains creation out of love. He dies for sins out of love. He can't escape love because he is love. And by virtue of his act of creating, he has bound himself to man. It's like being a parent. There's, there, are, there are kind of two schools of thought about parenthood, in my experience, two big ones. One is, I have had this child, and I'm going to love them, and I'm going to cherish them, and and yes, I have a responsibility to take care of them, but that responsibility, that unwritten law, isn't really a law to me. It's a joy because I love my child. So I'll do everything for my child. Would you gladly lay down your life for your child? Absolutely you would. And would it be a burden for you to do so? No. It's a part of your nature as mother and father who love. Okay? The other school of thought is, well, I'll give you a roof over your head, and I'll give you food, and I'll give you clothes and shoes, and I'll take you to school, and I'll, I'll, I'll do what I need to do until you turn 18, and when you're 18, you're out, and you're on your own. And the only reason I'm doing that until you're 18 is because I'm obligated to do it. And you say, well, are you really being a parent? See, because when you become a parent, you are bound to the child. You can't just have a child and then say, well... Good luck to you. You know, there, there are duties associated with begetting. You have begotten a child, and now your responsibility is to care for that child even till the day that you die. You are never, ever anything other than your mother and your father's little boy or little girl. Doesn't matter how old you get, how big your beard gets, you and I know your, your mother always I don't know what your mother thinks of your beard. My mother always tells me I need to get rid of it. My entire life, that's how it's been. 
but uh, so I you know, <laughs> which is really neither here nor there. But you know, you're always the child. You're always your mother, your mother's little boy, little girl. You're always your father's little boy, little girl. Why is it that you mourn so much when you lose a parent? And and I think in particular of like a woman who loses her father. Why is it that a woman has such a hard time losing her father? Because there's a special kind of a relationship there. No matter how old you are, you're always daddy's little girl. Even if, there are, even if you have sisters, you are all daddy's girls. And it's a nice thing. Um, so you are God's children and you are always God's children. Remember the, the prodigal son. Does the son get to choose to be the son or not to be the son? No, he's always the son, no matter what he does. He can be the worst person in the world, and he is still the son. Now, I was a very bad teenager, which people have heard before. And uh, many times I heard, particularly from my mother, I really, really can't stand you. I love you, but I, I, you know, I will always love you, but I really cannot stand you. And, and that's sometimes the way it is. Like, you think of the flood, right? And... Uh, it's, it says, God regretted that he had made man. Or God was sorry that he had made man. And then you think, put it in terms of parental language and parental love. Is there ever a time, even when your kids are at their worst, where you say, I really wish you hadn't been born. I really regret having you. Would you ever go that far? I think that's a little extreme. I think you can, you can the, the furthest that you really can ever go is, I really can't stand you, but I'll always love you. You can't escape the fact that you love. And even when they are backbiters and behave improperly and do things that you know that you raised them not to do, you still can't help but to love them and to want to take care of them. That's why, uh, for example, when children leave the faith, you know, they go off to college and then think because they went to college, they're now geniuses, that they are too smart for God because everyone at college says that to be smart, you, you, you can't believe in God, so they believe it. And then the, what do the parents do? They come to the pastor and they say, what do I do? I want to bring him back into the faith. What do I do? What do I do? Uh, because they always want to do something. You always want to look out for your kids. So that's, that's God's relationship with you. He must die for you. He doesn't want you to die. He wants you to live because he loves you, because he is love, and he wants you to live in love. Uh, let me jump ahead here. Verse 21, If a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? And this question is the key. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? And without looking ahead, do you know what the answer is? Of course you do. No. no the idea, that's why we reject the idea of double predestination. You know what that is? So we accept predestination, which is that from the beginning of the world, God has elected people for salvation. True. Yes, he has. The idea of double predestination is that God separates the sheep and the goats from the beginning of time and says, these people are saved, 
and these people I'm just going to damn. And it doesn't matter what they do, doesn't matter who they are, I am, I'm just going to damn them. They are condemned from before the time that they were born. And we say, well, that's not, that's not right. It's not in character with what God has revealed about himself. God says that he doesn't delight in the pleasure, he, he takes no pleasure in the, in the death of man. He doesn't want you to die. So what is the tone of Ezekiel 18? Not only is it not harsh, it is pleading. Please, do I have any pleasure in this? I don't, but there's nothing else that will happen to you if you really want to run away from me and live in sin. Don't do it. I am begging you. Turn from your wicked ways. Live in righteousness and you will live. It's not a conditional. If you do this, I'm going to get you. It's not a conditional. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. If you, if, you, if you come to what is good, you will live. And all of your trespasses, they, they will be forgotten. And this is really important. What does it take for God to forget? In this sense, God is better than you because you don't forget. But God is also omniscient. He is all-knowing. How, uh, how can God, who knows everything, forget? And that's the key here for Ezekiel 18. How can he forget? He chooses to. It isn't that he chooses to. Because he can't, he can't deny the fact that he knows everything. One of, you know, God being omnipotent, being all-powerful, doesn't mean he can do anything and everything. And that's actually one thing that pagans will say makes God weak. That he can do, if he were really powerful, he could do anything. But it's not really good, is it? Because if God can do anything, then he can break a promise. He can lie. It's good to have limitations, you see? So look at God, and this is important for the modern world, by the way. This is a quick tangent I'm going to take you down. This is very important. The world thinks that freedom is what? To do whatever you want. To do whatever you want. And it isn't. That is slavery. Look at God. Is God's omnipotence, is his power in that he can do anything at all? You can do anything. As long, you know, anything you want, go and do it. That's not power. That's limitation. Because then you're nothing. You're not guided by anything. God can do anything that he wills. But he cannot do some things, like he cannot choose not to love you. He cannot go against himself. He cannot lie. He cannot break a promise. And that is a greater strength than him doing anything. And that is reflected in you, created in the image and likeness of God. Is it better for you to be free and express your freedom in doing anything at all? No, it isn't. The world is not your oyster. It shouldn't be. You are bound to certain things, but the things you are bound to, specifically God and his will and his likeness and character and image, those make you more free because true freedom is living uh, to the fullness of yourself. True freedom actually is the promise in the garden, be fruitful and multiply, grow up, 
become more mature in body and in soul, in faith and in life. And if you can't do that because doing anything, whatever you want, is being childish, immature. I want it. That's immature. You're not maturing. You're, you're not living by a binding principle. So that's actually to be slave. To be free is to be bound to what is good and what will offer you the ability to be yourself to its fullest degree. God cannot tell a lie. God cannot deny his own law. But what he can do is ensure that he follows his law to the perfect degree. It's not a loophole. This is just what C.S. Lewis calls the deeper magic, the deeper laws of creation. The sinner has to die, but the innocent has to live. So God says, I will become a sinner and I will die because I am also innocent and I will give my innocence to everyone who is a sinner so that they all will be innocent, so that they all will live. That's why when Satan points out to God in the garden and says, Ha! Look! Your law says they have to die. They ate of that fruit and you made a promise that if they ate of it, they would die. Now kill them. And the Lord says, Yes, you're right. They have to die. But I am going to become man and I will die that they will live. And Satan says, Oh, I didn't think of that one. The Lord never, you know, never try to play the legal battles with God. Uh, he knows the law that he wrote much better than anybody else. Never start a land war in Asia. That's from The Princess Bride. <laughs> uh, okay. Should, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? No. I want them to live. So that's Ezekiel 18. So back to confession now. Why does the Christian confess? Why do you confess your sins? There's a whole boatload of reasons, and we've sort of jumped around them, and I've explained to you the rationale behind all of them, but here are the actual like, bullet point reasons. One, because faith agrees with Jesus, and faith does what Jesus says. If Jesus says, hey, you need to repent. You're, go you're going the wrong way. You need to turn metanoia about face from the direction you're going and come back to me, you say, oh, you're right, Jesus. I, I am doing this. I, I, need to, I need to do an about face. Yes, 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 yes. Which is why Luther says, when I urge you to go to confession, I'm urging you to do nothing more than to be a Christian. So, faith agrees with what Jesus says and faith obeys him. That's one reason why you confess your sins. Two, because faith wants for itself the good that Jesus wants for it and the good that Jesus offers. That's why primitive faith, when we talked about baptism, like the Ethiopian eunuch, primitive faith always will push you to where Jesus is and where Jesus is giving his good gifts. It can't help but to do that because that is where faith goes. Faith always goes to where Jesus is. And faith always wants the thing that Jesus is giving. That's why if I ever say, hey, would you like the sacrament? And you say, eh, no thanks. I say, all right, let's sit down and have a talk about this. What's, because why would, you, why would you ever say, well, God has some gifts for me? Eh, maybe tomorrow. It's, you know, why? why? Faith always wants the things. Would you like the body and blood of Jesus? Yes, yes. That's how faith answers. Yes, please, give it to me. If I could see 
all the assaults of the devil, all of the arrows that he hurls at me, I would flee to the sacrament every opportunity I could. I would live in it. I'd live in church. Roll your sleeping bag out here and we'll just give you the sacrament. Um, Faith wants to live and faith wants you to live and really because Jesus wants you to live and faith looks at Jesus and says, he wants me to live. I want to live because living is with you and I want you. Um, So faith wants to live and faith knows that sin is an evil death. So faith knows I must get rid of this. I must kick this habit. I must do this. I must do this because I want to live. I want to die well. I don't want to be ensnared in this evil death. Faith trusts in the promises of God. So when God says, the sinner who repents and who turns from his wicked ways will live, and you say, amen, because that's what faith says. Amen, Lord. I will turn from my wicked ways and live. And because faith demands from God the promises that God has made. Faith makes demands, and that's a good thing, that God makes a promise and faith says, "Eh, you promised that you were going to forgive me, and I'm asking for forgiveness right now. You have to forgive me. And the Lord says, you're right. I did make that promise. The example that I use is one that my pastor made, which was that when dad goes out to you know, run to the hardware store on a Saturday morning and says, hey, son, would you like to come with me to the hardware store? You know, we can go get a treat after the hardware store, you and me. And then you go to the hardware store, you get everything you need, you get in the car and you say, okay, well, time to go home. And the, the, the son says, no, you said we were going to get a treat. Do you then say, hey, you knock it off. Don't talk to me like that. We're going home. No, you say, oh, that's right, I did promise. I did say that. Well, that's a reflection of the Lord who makes promises and then says, ah, you know, make demands of me. I've told you everything that I'll do for you. I'm just sitting, waiting for you to say, hey, wait a minute, God said he would do this. Hey, God, do this. He says, yes, great. Thank, thanks be to God that you asked me for that. I am so happy because you're trusting in my words. You don't call upon God if you don't believe in his words. So faith trusts in his word. Faith then also makes demands of his promises. That's why you can say, forgive us our sins, instead of, could you please, pretty please, forgive me my sins maybe today? You say, forgive me my sins, Lord. Give me what you said you would give me. Forgive me. And he says, yes, I did say I would forgive you, and I will. I'll never hold out on you. The Lord never holds out. Um, God wants to forgive, and this is something that you trust in, which is why you confess. You know that God wants to forgive you, Ezekiel 18. He doesn't want you to die. He wants to forgive you. So go and ask him to forgive you. Uh, God can only forgive you the sins that you give to him. The sins you give to Jesus are the ones that are forgiven. He can't go and, and take them away from you. If you choose that you would rather hold on to them, then the only thing he can do is plead with you, please not to do that. So you know that he wants your sins. You know that he wants you to live. You know that he is pleading with you. Just give in. He's trying to love you. Let him love you. Yes. I never answered that question. Yeah, no. Um, Well, 
in a, in a, in a way, in a way. I mean, you're not. God, God wants to, for, God does want to forgive your sins, Casey. So you're not wrong. But the thing is, if I know everything, even if I wished that I didn't know everything, how do I not know everything? That's who I am. So how do I forget something that I must know? I know everything. Well, if you know everything, then the only thing that you don't know is the things that are nothing, which are the things that don't exist. Which So that means that when your sins are forgiven, they are obliterated. In order for God to forget your sins, your sins cannot exist. It's not that God just turns the other way and says, I just won't remember those the way that you do. The way that God does it is say, he says, okay, yeah, put them on the cross with Jesus, and then the wrath of God comes and consumes them all, and they don't exist. They are, the wrath of God blasts out of existence. God forgets them because there's nothing to remember. God doesn't know about them on the last day because there's nothing to know, because they've been blasted away. That's the thing to think about in absolution. It's not just that he says, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. okay, your sins are forgiven. I'll forget about them now. You know, I won't look at them again. I'll close the book, even though the book will still be on my mantle. They're still in there. I just, you know, won't read it. No, it's that they just are blasted away. Every time you go, he takes the book and he throws it into the fire and then grinds the ash into little dust and scatters it into the breeze to the four corners of the earth to where it is nothing. That is how God forgets, and that happens in absolution. This is why absolution is such a powerful thing, and it's why when you say, well, I don't feel like God really forgave me, I say, oh, trust me, uh, he has, and if you don't feel like you're forgiven, whatever it feels like to be forgiven, I'm not saying that you can't feel forgiveness. I have felt forgiveness before, and you may, and the way that you feel forgiveness might not be the same way that I feel it, uh, but what I'm saying is whether or not you feel something does not dictate the reality of it. If I feel forgiven and the Lord has also said you are forgiven, then great, my feelings align with God. If God says you're forgiven and I don't feel forgiven, then am I going to trust what I feel or am I going to trust what the Lord says, who I know cannot lie to me? It's not that he will not, it's that he cannot, which is even better. He loves me so he cannot lie to me. Uh, so that's why I say, well, if you really don't feel like you're forgiven, just keep on coming back again and again and again and again and again and have me, have Christ, tell you your sins are forgiven until it finally breaks through, you know, you're not to be rude or anything, but until it finally breaks through your thick skull and you realize, hey, wait a minute, I actually am. And I'm not saying that, by the way, when I say your thick skull, I'm not saying that you're dumb if you don't feel forgiven or if you struggle with forgiveness, because everybody does. What I'm saying is that sin makes a big thick skull out of you. Being a sinner um, and your memory, remember when I said that memories can be bad? Memories are bad when you look at them and you say, God could, couldn't possibly forgive this. And then you create a big thick head that the Lord, and a big thick heart that the Lord has to go, chink, you're forgiven, chink, you're forgiven. Chink, you're forgiven until it goes and cracks open. And if the Lord has to continue telling you that, uh, he will, because he loves to do it. 
the Lord is always more willing to give than we are to receive, or even than we are to ask. Uh, but it's important to know that in absolution, it's, it's not that your sins are just, blah, well, now they're over here instead of being over here, and I'll put them away and not look at them again. I'll hide them in the closet where I hide all the rest of that stuff I never touch with all my scrapbooking things. It's that, <laughs> it's, it's that he says, you, you know, you go to heaven, or you come on the last day and Christ is standing there and you say, well, what about my, he says, ah, welcome to my kingdom. And you say, well, what about my sins? And he goes, what sins? Goes, well, well, all the sins I committed. And he says, what, what, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like, well, never mind, that doesn't, doesn't matter. So, um, ultimately it's like this. When your kids do something wrong, if you are a parent, if, you're, if you know that you have made a rule that there is no ball in the house and you leave your two boys at home and you come home and there's a window broken and there's a ball in the front yard and it's obvious that the ball was thrown through the window and you say, did you play ball in the house? Are you asking the question because you don't know? You know, kids always think, how did they know? And you get to be an adult and you think, you're just really bad at telling lies and really bad at hiding the evidence. Well, how did they know? Uh, it's like in the garden. Does he say, did you eat of the tree because he doesn't know? Hey, wait a minute. No, he knows. What are you after when you ask, did you play ball in the house? Confession. Yes, you're after a confession. Why do you want your children to confess? So they know that they've done something wrong and so that in that knowledge they turn away from it, turn away from their wicked ways and live. <laughs> How many times, you know, if you can think back to your childhood, did your mother or your father say, oh boy, I'm going to kill him? You know, turn from your wicked ways and live. Uh, but, you know, you want your children to confess. Well, the Lord wants that too. I want you to turn away from it. I want you to acknowledge what you've done. I want you to give it up. I want you to tell me I've done it. And then, yeah, may, there'll be, you know, you'll get a spanking or whatever. And, but I'll still tell you that I love you. I only do this stuff because I love you. There was a day last week, actually, I had this, I had one of those, this hurts me more than it hurts you moments. Circe was misbehaving, and I told her, you'd do that, whatever it was, that one thing again, and I'm going to have to spank you. And she said, oh, no, 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 spanking, I'll be a good girl. And I said, good, I want you to be a good girl. And then, of course, 10 minutes later, she did it. And I said, what, what do I have to do? She said, oh, you need me I don't want to do this. I, I told you not, to, I told you ahead of time that this is what was going to happen because I didn't want to do it and I thought that you would listen and then not do it and now I have to do it and I don't want to do it and it's, you know, it's that feeling of I don't want to do this to you. I want you to live. Turn away from Leave it alone. Give it up and come to me and live. That's what the Lord says to you. That's why he's given you confession and absolution. Um, now let's very quickly Look at the Catechism. 326 in your hymnal.
So, now you know what you know about sin. You know what you know about confession. You know that the Lord wants to take care of you. Well, what sins should we confess? Well, you should plead guilty of all sins, even those that you're not aware of. So, this is like at the beginning of the service, um, we have that confession and absolution, what we call the excuse me, general confession and absolution, so that you just say, yep, I sinned, I sinned in thought, word, and deed. I did all these things. I don't even know all the things I did. And then he says, well, I forgive you your sins. Okay. So you, say, you uh, confess every sin. You, I am a poor, miserable sinner. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins. Forgive us our trespasses. Which ones? Our trespasses, all of them. Well, which ones? Which Do you know about them? I'm sure that I know about some, but I'm probably sure I don't know about others. You never quite know how some of your acts affect other people, so you never, you, know, you never quite know. Sometimes you can be very hurtful and not even realize it. And you, you know, I'd never think to confess that. If I had told a joke and it offended someone and I didn't know that it offended them, I'd never confess that. But you confess generally, yes, I, I try to do good and somehow still I do wrong. I'm just, I am a poor, miserable sinner. And which are these sins? Well, consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. And there's a whole, you know, uh, in Bible class I handed one of those things out where it breaks down all of the commandments and you look at those and you just go, Oh boy, I am so awful. And you get through the first commandment you're like, Have you done this? Ooh, check, check, check. And it's like... You know, 30 things per commandment that you look at and you go, oh, I got a lot of confession to do. <laughs> but it just, you know, the point of things like that is to open your eyes to the fact that, hey, even if I maybe thought I was doing pretty well on this front, I wasn't. You know, it's like you're saying, oh, I did, I, I, I did really, really well at this job. And they say, okay. Now let's up the difficulty. Let's up the ante now. And I'm going to teach you how to do it uh, the professional way. And you go, oh, I thought I was doing it the professional way. And say, oh, honey, no. <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, which are these sins? Well, have you done any of this stuff? Well, if you have, then there's something for you to confess. Right? How are you to confess your sins then? What does it look like for me to confess? Well, here's the first thing. What is confession? First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution. And we talked a little about, about this when we broke apart confession, so you are contrite, your heart is broken. Um, rend your hearts, not your garments, the prophet Joel writes. We'll hear that very often on Ash Wednesday. I really, I, you know, they would tear their clothes as a symbol of penitence, which is fine, it's an outward symbol, but does the Lord want just outward symbols. No, that's why the gospel for Ash Wednesday is the Lord saying, when you fast, which says, hey, you ought to be fasting, but when you do it, don't do it like the hypocrites who just do it because they say, hey, look, I'm fasting. Do it for real. The outward thing is supposed to reflect something inward. So when you tear your garments, which you may, you ought only to be doing it if it is a reflection of the inner rending of your heart which is penitence, contrition, okay? Um, second, that we receive absolution. Confession is giving your sins to Jesus. Absolution is receiving forgiveness from Jesus. From the pastor as from God himself. 
not doubting but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. That by it, that is by the words of absolution, not by our faith or by our act of not doubting, just to be clear. I'm going to hand this out to you, um, which we don't have time to go through in full, but the, oh, I don't need one. Um, but this is a, it is the confession, the right of private confession and absolution that we use here. So when you come in for confession, private confession, this is the right. And then there's some commentary that talks a little bit about why this is here, what it means. And there's a really important question, uh, and that is, do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? The pastor or the priest says to the penitent. And the penitent's response is supposed to be, yes. <laughs> if the penitent says no, then confession and absolution stops right there and uh, might not continue um, after a long lecture. But the whole point is to say, do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? And you say, yes, which is to say, I am not the one speaking to you. The Lord is the one speaking to you. What, uh, what, God's, priests ratify, what God's priests do on earth, God ratifies in heaven, which is to say, if I say it's good, God says it's good. And I say it's good, not because God says, hey, whatever you do down there, just let me know so I can make sure to change it on the board up here, okay? It's that God simultaneously says, hmm, no, I'm going to change the board. And then the pastor speaks the reality of what God is doing in heaven. Uh, so that's important. Do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? Yes. Well, look at this. Receive absolution, that is forgiveness, from the pastor as from God himself. Not doubting. Do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? Yes, I am receiving it, not doubting, but firmly believing that by this word, that is God's word, my sins are forgiven. So how do you know that you've made a good confession then? How do you know that you can walk away from your confession and, and feel good, like I, I've, I've done it, I've done a good confession? <clears throat> You know you've made a good confession when there's nothing more to say. So the example that I would have you think about for that is the prodigal son that we already looked at. How does the, how, what is the good confession of the prodigal son? That he says, Father, I have sinned against you and I am not worthy to be called your son. Good confession. What more is there to say? That's why the father cuts him off. Because there's no bargaining, there's no excuses, there's no caveats. You don't get to go to confession and say, I really hate my neighbor's guts, Lord. But if he were a nicer person, I would love him. Well, then that's not confession. You see, no excuses, no caveats, no bargains. Uh, you can't fix the problem. And part of your confession is acknowledging that there is a problem and that you can't fix it. And the Lord says, oh, don't worry. I'll fix it for you. Just come to Daddy. Come, running, come down the road, and when I see you, I'll come running to you. And I'll put, a, I'll, I'll put my arms around you, and I'll give you the rings, and I'll give you my robe, and I'll kiss you. It's going to be okay. That's, that's absolution. Confession is, I've been a... I've been a poor, deluded bear of no brain at all. And absolution is, oh, I think you're the best bear. And then you can walk out going, I'm the, I'm the best bear. He, he told me I was the best bear. Can you believe that? And that's, that's really what it is. 
Um, so you know you've made a good confession when you make confession and then there's nothing more that you have to say. I've done this. Okay, that's a good confession. Give your sins to Jesus. That's a good confession, is giving your sins to Jesus. Um, we don't have, we need to rush through kind of this last bit because we have to get through this. But in John chapter 8, there is the, the account of Jesus with the woman who was caught in adultery. And there are a few things that I want to highlight to you about this narrative. First, how, when they say, the woman is caught in adultery, Lord, caught in the very act. What does that mean? Like, think about the context of it. This woman was caught in, she's an adulterer. How do you know she's an adulterer? She was caught in the act. Yes. Yeah, somebody walked in. The Pharisees peeking through the windows. Oh, we got you. Basically, I'm going to give you a little insight into this entire encounter. Jesus, the Pharisees saying, well, she's a, she's a sinner and we need to stone her. And Jesus saying, well, if you're without sin, you're welcome to throw the stone. And then them all walking away. Do you know what this is? This is, hey, mom and dad, he didn't close his eyes during the prayer. Oh, really? How do you know that if your eyes were closed? It's that. That's what this is. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I, I felt that their eyes were open. <laughs> Kids, they're just so bad at coming up with excuses. You know, so, but that's what this is. Oh, she's a sinner. We got to take care of that. Okay. But how do you know? Were your eyes open during the prayer? Drop the rocks. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, so what absolution is, is right here. I'll just look at the very end. Um, whoops, that's verse 10. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw that no one but the woman, excuse me, saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Now notice the difference between accusing and condemning. That's going to be important later on. Accusing and condemning. Lots of people can accuse you, but who can condemn you? See? So the accusers are all gone. Did nobody condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. There, that's the end, right? Whoops! Go and sin no more. Now this is important too because you know, in your, your Facebook Bible memes and all of that, the only part of this verse that you ever see is, neither do I condemn you. And then you think, oh, that's so great. I can do whatever I want because Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Yes, he says that, but he also says, therefore, go and sin no more. Which is to say, again, you know, this is where St. Paul gets this idea, should we continue in sin and let grace abound? We know that Jesus is going to say, I don't condemn you. Does that mean that we continue to sin and go, well, I can live it up because Jesus said he ain't going to condemn me. So, you know, well, no. You're put into this struggle, remember. It's harder, your life is harder being a Christian because now you know good and evil and you're struggling against evil and toward what is good. 
so when Jesus says, okay, your sins are forgiven, but go and sin no more, he says, be strengthened in the fight. Go back out there and keep on fighting. Don't just become complacent. And the story I always use is my brother, who oh, he fell into every body of water he ever met, still does. 28 years old and he still can't keep himself dry around a lake. So my grandpa took us fishing at Tenney Park in Madison and there was a little bridge and we fished for sunfish. We heard a splash and my brother was wading around in the water and my grandpa yelled at him and said, why are you in the water? And my brother said, well, I figured I was going to fall in eventually, so I might as well just climb in. That's the attitude the Lord is against. Complacency. Well, I'm going to sin because I know I can't not sin, so might as well just give in. No, go and sin no more. Be strengthened as you go out with the word of absolution and continue to struggle against sin, that you don't do it. May the memory of your sin be so terrible you never wish to commit it again. Um, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The word of absolution is the word of Jesus right here. Neither do I condemn you, therefore go and sin no more. When you confess your sins, Jesus says to you, mm, okay, but where are those ones that accused you? And you say, I don't see them anywhere. Do you believe that my word, uh, that you, do you believe that my forgiveness is God's forgiveness? Yes, I do. Therefore, let it be unto you as you believe. I forgive you your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't condemn you. None of your accusers are here anymore. Um, and I don't condemn you. Therefore, go and sin no more. That is absolution. Absolution is an acquittal. Now there's no divine wrath on you anymore. You are acquitted. And in its place, you are made clean spiritually. God does not hold the sins against you anymore. That's the vertical plane. Just like on the horizontal plane, you don't hold the sins of your uh, enemies against them. This is why, by the way, you know, it's really hard to love and to forgive your enemies. Very, very difficult. One of the hardest things in life. And that's why the language of debts and debtors is actually very helpful in the Lord's Prayer because it's in a way more powerful than trespasses. <clears throat> forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I'm not saying that you should pray it a different way. You can keep praying it like that. But the, what the original languages are, are forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And in that sense, then, you, you get all of these. Jesus is always talking about money and sex. Sex and money are things that cause the biggest sin. Well, how fitting, then, that money becomes a symbol for Sin and grudge-bearing, debts, what do they owe you? Um, and you think of the parable of the, the man who owes his master an unthinkable sum of money and his master just forgives him. Okay, forgives the debt. You don't owe me this anymore. And then he goes out and he shakes down his servant for, for the $10 from the McDonald's meal last week. And he says, well, I just forgave you $10 trillion, and you're out here shaking down your brother for 10? Didn't you learn anything? 
shouldn't you, you know, forgive that debt too? Like I forgave your debt. If I forgave 10 trillion, don't you think you could forgive 10? And so this, this idea of debts, that somebody has wronged you, and so now they, sorry, uh, they have wronged you, and so now they owe you. What do you say about apologies? I owe you an apology. See, you're already using the language of debts. I owe you an apology. And forgiveness says, for what? You don't owe me anything. The Lord has taken away my debts. I take away your debts. You don't owe me anything. Now, here's one last thing. Does the Lutheran Church believe in penance? Do you know what penance is? Yes, yes, us doing things to make it better. Do we believe in that? It's kind of a trick question. No kind of about it. It is a trick question. <laughs> um, we do, yes. Uh, we believe in it differently than how the Roman Catholic Church would teach it, but we do believe in penance. Penance is restitution. So... Um, Essentially, what penance is, is you doing your best to make right your wrongs. You cannot fix the damage that is done to yourself by sin. So confession, in that sense, is not a deal or an exchange where you say, excuse me, where you say, well, Lord, I've done this bad thing, but let me make it up to you. There's no excuse, there's nothing you can say. You can't fix the damage you've done to yourself, which is why you need absolution, because you need someone else to fix the damage you did to yourself. Vertical plane. But on the horizontal plane, can you undo the harm that you have done to another person? Can you unspeak the harsh words that you have spoken to another person? Can you, can you take those things back? Can you turn the clock back to before you ever did those things and, and make them not happen? No, you can't. What's done is done. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is, how great or how small. Once it has been done, the damage is already done. So you can't, you can't go back in time and undo the damage. Only Jesus can do that. Remember, he's the great undoer. That ties in with this idea that sins just don't exist. He undoes them. There's nothing there. Um, but on the horizontal plane, you do your best to mitigate the damage. So your penance is restitution. It has, it doesn't, your penance is not done to earn your absolution. Your penance is done because you have been absolved. Do you see what the difference is? You're not earning forgiveness, but your sins have been forgiven, and therefore you now, again, look at yourself and go, yes, I have done this wrong. I need to try and do my best to repair this and, uh, and make good what I have done. Now, it's like going and putting a Band-Aid on the wound. It doesn't change the fact that the wound is there, but you can put a salve and a Band-Aid on it and care for the wound. That's what your penance is. Uh, a really good example is this. If you go and you rob the local bank, and they don't know who did it and they can't find you, and then you come to confession and you confess that you robbed the local bank, will the pastor speak absolution to you? Yes. Will the pastor say, but uh, just make sure they don't catch you and keep coming back for forgiveness, okay? And, you know, make sure the church gets a cut. 
No. The pastor says your sins are forgiven. Now, let's walk down to the police station together and you can turn yourself in and you can return all of that money. That's your penance. Mitigating the damage. Now, you returning the money doesn't change the fact that the bank was robbed, doesn't eliminate the fact that you took the money, and it doesn't automatically mean that, well, I, I turned myself in and I returned it, and I my sins were forgiven, so I shouldn't suffer any penalties, right? No, you should. There are consequences for actions, but the Lord does not hold your sins against you, and you have done your best to make right what you have made wrong, putting salve and band-aid on the wound, taking care of the wound, even though the wound is still there. That's penance. Um, so penance is then a natural response of faith after absolution because when your eyes are opened, this is Jesus saying, therefore depart and sin no more. If you rob the bank and then you decide you, you want to still be Scrooge McDuck and live in your now you know, pit of money that, you, that was unlawfully gained, then you aren't actually sinning no more. You're continuing to live in that same sin. And that is bad, to live in sin, manifesting sin. Then that becomes for you a mortal sin because you have no intention of actually struggling or wrestling with that sin. You've given into it fully. Well, the Lord said he forgave my sins, so, it, so I can keep the money still then. As long as Jesus says my sins are forgiven. But he also says, go and sin no more which means that if you're, if you're living in that sin, give it up. If you have all of that money that, has, that you stole, that you took unlawfully, then return it. Give it back. Get the sin away from you. Okay? So if you come to confession and absolution, pastor may give you things to do to help you with your sin if it's something that's really troubling, like, hey, you, know, you should maybe say this, this prayer or maybe take a little more time out of your day to do this and that and... and uh, you know, and uh, pray. A pastor might even say something like, hey, pray the rosary. Pastor, I have a rosary that I pray that's really good for um, meditation during the day. You hold onto the beads and there's something tactile about it that you can feel it as you're praying. And, you know, we don't pray the Hail Mary, but, but Luther had a rosary that he used and, and it's sort of based on that. So, you know, some, but something like that where you have sort of a repetition where you go and you do it and then you turn your mind from what it was on to something more holy. Touch what is good and holy, run from what is evil. Don't touch what's evil. Touch is important. Um, so it's a natural response of faith and that says, I want to make good. I want to love and that means taking care of people and trying my best to mitigate the damage that I have caused. Depart and sin no more. Okay. Um, so you may come and you may get advice like that, go and do this and help you with that sin, or you may get penance. Like, you hated your brother. Well, um, your penance is that you need to tell, you know, confess your sin to your brother and say, I've, I've hated your guts and I'm sorry for that and I've sought absolution from the Lord and he has forgiven me and I would seek absolution from you and uh, depart in sin no more. Strive with your prayer to pray for the person that you hate so that you, you know, really work on not hating them. You don't, nobody says that you have to get along 24-7, but you can't hate. It's okay that not, you not, don't get along. Not everybody does. We're human beings. We're all different. But what is, un <clears throat> what is unacceptable is letting sin be the thing that defines your relationship with another person. Grudge-bearing that is the, the basis for how you interact with another person. Um, that's wrong. And the hatred that then stems from it. I couldn't possibly forgive them. Then the Lord can't possibly forgive you. Um, that's the reality. 
So run away from your sins. Give them all to Jesus. Don't hold on to them. Any questions uh, here about confession and, and absolution? And, Mm-hmm. And when I'd ask her, why didn't you go up today? And she'd say, oh, he's got a conflict with the neighbor. And she'd go up. And he needs to talk to the pastor first. And I, I just always thought that was strange. And maybe it's not, because my dad always went, my mom always went. So it's just something different. It's a pious... There's a pious attitude behind that, refraining from the sacrament if you haven't done something with your neighbor. It's a, there's a pious attitude behind it. Um, however, unless you're saying within yourself, I would rather burn in hell than forgive that person, then the thing that you need most is actually the sacrament. And you shouldn't be staying away from it, especially when you remember that part of the reason you go to, the, to receive the Eucharist is to learn to love the people that you hate. You need medicine for the sickness that you have, so you shouldn't stay away from your medicine. You know, the other thing is, how many times have you sinned already in church against your neighbor between the point where you confessed your sins and then you're going up to receive the sacrament? Are you going to go, are we going to take a break in the service for an hour and a half for everybody to go to everybody in the congregation and, and you know, make sure that we're all good? I looked at the back of your head and I thought your hair looked really terrible today and then I thought a mean thought about you. Can you forgive me? Like, do we need to do that? Do you, or do you need to refrain because you said, well, I, I had a bad thought about the, the, the parents whose kids were out of control this morning and, and I repent of that and now, you know, I, it, it's just kind of silly. You're going to sin and that's, that's the way it is. I'm not going to say it's okay, but it's how it is. And you need, you need to go to the place where you're going to get the medicine for your sin, which is in, in a confession and absolution and then in the Eucharist. So, so you need that. The Eucharist is going to be the thing that changes the landscape of your heart. Confession and absolution blasts away the impediments, blasts out all of those sins, that debris that's everywhere. The, um, the Eucharist will then come in and change the landscape, refertilize the soil so that good fruits can grow and give you the strength to be able to um, continue to grow in love. And those things are very important and, and you need them. So especially when you are having some trouble with people is when you need to do that. Again, unless you are saying within yourself, I would rather burn in hell than forgive that person. Now that's the time when you stay away. Um, but uh, unless you're at that point, you don't stay away. And we'll get there when we talk about the Eucharist because there's a really great quote from St. Hilary of Poitiers where he talks about when you should refrain from the sacrament. And, and he basically says, unless your soul is in danger of damnation, you should never stay away because you need it that badly. Okay. Yeah. So that whole thing sort of came from pietism. Okay. Again, in the 1800s where we said, oh, this is such a holy thing that we should, you know, we should try and stay away from it or make sure that we don't partake of it unless we are 100% holy. Um, and then it's like, well, then what's the point of the sacrament? because it's to make you holy. So it's assumed that you're not holy when you're going there. That's kind of the point. Um, so anyway, that's, yeah. And, and I actually take note when, when people don't commune because um, yes, my memory is sort of hazy on Sunday mornings and, I, and if you tell me things, I, I won't remember them in the week, but there are some things I do remember uh, because I'm, I'm playing the game, and on Sunday morning, you know, that 
five minutes before service and then all through the service, my game is taking care of my people. And that means I know who comes to church without looking at the attendance pads. I know who comes to communion. And then I know who refrains. And if somebody refrains, then I make a point to talk to them um, and see what's going on because um, the reason that you should be refraining is not because there's a problem with your neighbor, but because there's a problem with you. And if there's a problem with you, then you can't fix it by yourself. So then in that case, first step is you need to come to confession and absolution. Um, but I need to know why people are staying away. And sometimes they say something like, well, I had a runny nose, so I didn't think I should partake. And I'm like, okay, uh, you're not going to get sick from the body and blood of Jesus because he says that this is good for you. And in fact, in the Lutheran confessions, it says, this is medicine for your body and for your soul. So if you want to see a place where miracles actually happen, if you have, a, you have a better chance of getting healed from your cold by going to receive the Eucharist than you do by, uh, of transmitting it to anybody else. That's, that's the reality. This is why I was so amazed by so many of these pastors that would approach the Eucharist on a Sunday morning during COVID wearing gloves and like masks and things. You think, what are we, what did, you know, First of all, what does Jesus say about it? Second of all, what did you swear to uphold in your ordination vows, if not the confessions of the Lutheran Church, that say it is impossible for you to get sick? If you, you know, this is our pool of Siloam, in a way. If you want to get healed, if you are a leper, if you are sick, if you do have the stomach flu, you actually should be coming here because that's the place where you're going to get better. Here's a funny story, though. Um, there is a family that attends the church that I grew up in, and uh, it's a family with many, I think they have six or seven kids. And one of the kids was, felt kind of sick, but felt like he should still go up to get communion. So the pastor put the host on his tongue, and he chewed the host and he swallowed it. And then all of a sudden his stomach said, no, thank you. And he vomited out on the communion rail, and nobody knew what to do because it was the body of Christ. <laughs> Everyone was just kind of like... What are we, oh, we've never encountered this before. So in the official altar book, there is a rubric that says, like bullet point, if somebody should vomit, this is what you should do. And that was because of that boy at my church growing up, because nobody had ever encountered that before. And they, you know, they called the district president and the all the bishops and said, what are we supposed to do? There's vomit here. And we, you know, I think they cleaned it up, but then sort of set everything aside and was like, it's got the body of Christ in it. I mean, he chewed it up. It's in there. What do we do? <laughs> and I think they were like, uh, just go bury it in the yard, I think. <laughs> and, but, but there's like... There's a whole rubric about that, but you know, so like, if you think you're gonna vomit, maybe, maybe don't. But, but you know, like, if you've got a cold, come. If you're, if you maybe have a sniffle, come. If you have a cough, come. Like, nobody else is gonna get sick. You're not gonna get any sicker. In fact, you have a better chance of getting better from doing that than you do by staying away. And I know that people do it for others' well-being. I understand that, but you know, think, th think of yourself a little more. <laughs> hey. All right, any other questions about stuff? You look like you have a question. No. Oh, okay. I, I was just thinking of your, your Robin and Banks story. Oh, brother, where art thou? Oh, yeah. Where, yeah. You know, oh, my sins are forgiven. Man, the state of Mississippi.
Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. All right, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.